Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 21 in a moment. And instead of the introduction that I had planned, I think the Lord gave us uh, an, an analogy, a parable. And I do not mean to make light when I say life is short, hell is hot, Jesus is the only way, heaven is forever. And the parable is it's warm in here. And I'm not trying to be funny about eternal things. Um, instead of my introduction, I do want that to serve as a parable, and because it is warm, I will do my best to be conscientious of the fact that it's a hot gym, and our attention span is therefore going to be shorter. The theme of today's sermon is eternity in the balance. John 8, verses 21 through 30, hear the word of the living God. Then he said again to them, I go away, you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Join me again as we pray and ask for God's help. God, I do thank you that you've made us moderately uncomfortable today. Maybe it will be a useful tool in the Spirit's power to show us the sobriety of this passage, the weight of this passage. Eternity is in the balance. And this paragraph could not be more sober about that reality. Soon, this life will be passed. Only those who believe in Christ will last. Give us Jesus. Give us Jesus. Do not let anyone here be as deaf as the people in verse 21 to 24. Do not let anyone here be as blind as the people in verses 28 to 30. God, help. Come, Spirit. Meet us now. Open our eyes to see what is here. Do Luke 24, 45. Open our minds to understand the Scriptures. There's no other way. We just sang. 
my one defense, my righteousness. Lord, I need you. God, make us sensible to our need of Christ. Help, oh God, help, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three points that I want to draw out from this passage. We won't touch every phrase in it, but the three points are beginning in verses 21 to 24, and it's this sobering reality that perishing people, people who are headed for a Christless eternity, those who will endure a very literal hell cannot hear Jesus' message. It's not that he's not plain. It's not that he's not speaking in the vernacular that's common to the people around him. I trust that everybody in the room can discern English, and you can hear the words that I'm saying. But there is a hearing of the message of Jesus that perishing people are incapable of discerning. It's like styrofoam pellets bouncing off of a brick wall. They simply cannot hear. So the point that we want to first see is perishing people cannot hear Jesus' message. Now notice in verse 22, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Now notice this, verse 22, since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now he did say that. It's at the end of verse 21. Where I am going, Jesus said, you cannot come. So in verse 22, it makes perfect sense that they pick up on that phrase and say, he said, where I'm going, you cannot come. Surely he's not going to kill himself with it, will he? They didn't think that he was a candidate for suicide, but his statement made sense to them that he would soon die. They were accurate in discerning that Jesus was talking about a departure from this earth, his death. Where I'm going, you cannot come, is not the point. They couldn't hear the point. Jesus had said to a crowd just a chapter earlier, 734, you will seek me and not find me where I am, you cannot come. He's reiterating the same theme. But here in chapter 8, he explains the reason. So friends, listen carefully. Why can perishing people not hear Jesus' message. In this verse, he gives us the reason. Not one time, not two times, but three times in verses 21 to 24. Verse 21, you will seek me and will die in your sin, singular. Verse 24, therefore I said, you will die in your sins, plural. For unless you believe, verse 24, that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now do you see why they could not hear Jesus' message? You would have to work very hard to miss that Jesus is clearly communicating that he knew that these people would die in their sin, 21, singular, and in their sins, verse 24, plural. But their conclusion was, surely he's not going to commit suicide, is he? Verse 22, he's not going to kill himself, is he? 
Maybe that's why he's saying we can't go where he's going to come. We can't come where he's going to go. They were correct in ascertaining that they could not come where Jesus would go, but that's the effect. They missed the cause. They missed the reason. This is to hold in their hand the fruit, we can't go to the same place, but not understand the root, why we are going to different places. These people can ascertain from Jesus' words that he believes that he will soon be someplace where they cannot travel, but they cannot discern why they will not be permitted to join him there. Jesus made his point crystal clear, but they were totally deaf. They could not spiritually hear. The reason that they could not come where Jesus was going is because, as the verse says three times, the passage says three times, they were in their sin and they would die in their sins. Anyone who does not have their sin impediment removed not only will not but cannot go where Jesus now is. Any who retain their sin cannot join him. Their sin problem had not been dealt with. This is the primary reason that God the Father sent God the Son into the world, namely to display the glory of the heart of God, the love of God, by sending his favorite, his glorious Son to deal with our sin problem. Now, I've already laid emphasis on it, but I just want you to see again, sin is singular in verse 21, and it's plural two times in verse 24. Jesus explains what he means in that specificity of singular and plural. The Lord Jesus is exposing both the root and the fruit. The bottom of their sin is their unbelief. The result of not believing is a life of producing rebellion against God. And if you only deal with the rebellion and you never deal with the root, you'll never be made right with God. We know that the root sin is unbelief because the Lord Jesus says in verse 24, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Do you see unbelief was underneath all of their other manifest rebellion against God? As we'll soon see explicitly in verse 28, The sinless Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners on the cross. When you lift up the Son of Man, to reference in verse 28 to his cross death, that's how God deals with our sin. And unless the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ground upon which you stand for forgiveness of your sin and reconciliation with God, then the sobering news of verse 21 is true of you you will die in your sins. Friends, this is the line of demarcation. Other than Jesus, there are no sinless people. But there are some who are forgiven sinners. 
These verses are dealing with the greatest problem in the universe. That's why I've titled the sermon, Eternity in the Balance. How will a holy God welcome someone as sinful as you and me to enjoy his presence forever without compromising his deity? How does he get to remain God and be our friend? If you've never wrestled with that quandary, you don't know what the love of God is. How will God remain God and befriend me? If you haven't battled with that, then you haven't come face to face with your sin. The Bible teaches that the reason Christ Jesus came into the world, 1 Timothy 1.15, is to save sinners. Good news. If you know yourself to be a sinner, you are a prime candidate for salvation. But if you say you have no sin, you make both yourself and God a liar. These people would not embrace the Savior for sinners who stood right in front of their faces because they couldn't hear it. They thought that they were righteous. Self-righteousness is a stench in the nostrils of God. You have to turn from not only your bad deeds, you have to turn from your best efforts to make God like you more. Anything you try to contribute to your salvation only worsens your damnable predicament. You can't help God save you. And lost people can't hear that message. Shared the gospel with a young man yesterday with whom I've shared the gospel, and many in this church have shared the gospel many times over the last 15 years. He can't hear the gospel. And many in our day are like him. And just like these people in verses 21 to 24, their unbelief. The gospel of John was written all 21 chapters, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. That's what John tells us he wrote the whole book for. But these people wouldn't believe. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Do you want to know, like this is as simple as I can put it, this is the message of the Bible in a phrase. You want to know what God requires of you? Two chapters earlier, Jesus answered the question. This is the work of God. This is what God wants you to do. Now, you would expect that Jesus would tell you to put forth some effort in the next phrase. This is the work of God, John 6, 29, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. The work is don't work. The work is rest in the work of another. Sinners are unwilling to do that. And they're unwilling to hear that. The risen Jesus has accomplished everything that's necessary for our sin problem to be removed, for the impediment of the barrier between us and our God to be dealt with. The risen Jesus... Paul says, is the reason our sin problem is gone. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith, that your belief is futile and you are still in your sins. But praise God, because he has been raised from the dead, the apostle said never to die again. It was impossible for him to be held by the power of death. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, we're not in our sins. Perishing people cannot hear Jesus' message. Which leads us to verses 25 to 27. Jesus only speaks God's message. 
Do you, know, you, don't know, do you want to know why lost people are not very impressed with Jesus? Because Jesus will not stop talking about the thing that they cannot hear. Verse 25 to 27, the bad news for lost people is that Jesus will not adjust his message to our palate, to our ear. In fact, he won't even adjust his message to convey all that he knows to be true about you. He only speaks God's message. Let your eyes fall on verse 25. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and judge concerning you. I could say a lot about you. But he who sent me is true in the things which I heard from him. These things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So we saw in verses 21 to 24, perishing people cannot hear. You have a sin problem. Verses 25 to 27, Jesus won't stop saying that. He only speaks God's message. Make no mistake, Jesus was never saying all that he knew to be true of mankind. Do you see how consecrated his tongue is to the Father? I have many things to speak concerning you. I have a lot of judgment that I could make about you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, that's what I'm telling you. He had much more that he could have said, but in his encounter, in this encounter, Jesus explains that his words were not representative of the exhaustiveness of what he knows to be true about you. In fact, he was limiting his message to this crowd to say to them exactly what he had been saying from the start, verse 25, what he had been saying from the beginning. Now, have you thought about the reality of verse 26? One reason that lost people don't like to get close to Jesus is he exposes them for who they are. But unless you're exposed for who you are, you'll never plunge yourself into the ocean of his merciful heart and receive all that he is. Do you see this reality in verse 26? I have many things to speak, many things to judge concerning you. John tells us that Jesus carefully selected the words that he said so that everyone who heard him would have the best opportunity to know what they must know about themselves and to know what they must know about God to be reconciled to him. John even tells us that when he set out to write 21 chapters, he didn't put chapter marks in there, but as it's divided for us today, as he set out to write this gospel, he tells us he carefully selected some of the words and signs that Jesus performed so that you would have a reliable record of the life and ministry of Jesus given by inspiration of the Spirit so that you would believe it's not everything, but it's what you need to know. There's actually a ton of mercy in verse 26. I have a lot that I could say about you, but I'm only telling you what the Father who sent me told me to say. You know God knows everything about you, We've heard preachers and Bible teachers talk about the shame we would all feel if on our projection today we put your life story or mine, all your secret sins and sinister thoughts. If all that were projected, we would run out of the room and 
total shame. You know, the Bible teaches that God does know the depth of our depravity. In Psalm 139, God minces no words to let us know that he searched us deeply. He can discern our thoughts, Psalm 139. Even before there's a word on our tongue, he knows what it's going to be. He's behind us and before us. There's nowhere we can escape from him. If we go to heaven, he's there. To the grave, he's there. If we go to the furthest part of the ocean, he's there. Even if we think that we can slip into the shadows and commit some sin and then roll back into the light and God didn't know about it, Psalm 139 says, surely darkness is not dark to you. Night is as bright as the day. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together inside my mother's womb. My frame is not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Even before I lived one day, you knew all my days before one of them happened. Let's be clear that when Jesus says in verse 26, that compact phrase, I have many things to speak and judge concerning you. He knew everything about these people. Jesus is God, and God is omniscient. He knows everything. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. You've lived your whole life in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth, waking and sleeping. Your whole life is Hebrews 13. Uh, Pardon me, Hebrews 4.13. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God with whom we must give an account. But notice the mercy of verse 26. I have so much I could say that would judge you. I have a lot of stuff that I know about you. But I'm only telling you what the Father wants me to say. Do you hear the mercy in that? Instead of telling you all the nasty things about the depths of your depraved heart, he just said three times, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, and you're born in sin. He just said that. But instead of projecting onto a screen all the thoughts that are in his omniscient mind about you and me, he tells us what is essential for us to know about ourselves and God so that we might be reconciled to him. Do you find this attractive? That he doesn't tell you everything about you? Because his intention is not to crush you, but to save you? Just like a few chapters earlier when he met the woman at the well, he doesn't tell her all that he knows about her, but she knows he knows everything about her. What he said was, you've spoken correctly. The man you're living with is not your husband, and you've had five husbands. In a phrase, Jesus just told this woman, I know about all of that. But he didn't nuance. He didn't write a dissertation. He didn't say, remember what you did on that day in that place with that man? He just says, I know. And you need to know that I know. And the reason you need to know that I know is not because I'm here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. That's verse 26 and 27. 
He who sent me is true, the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. What you must know about yourself and what is essential for you to know about God in order for you to become a child of God is precisely what you would know if you listen to the words of Jesus. But like so many people today, verse 27 is going to be the epitaph. I don't know what your tombstone is going to say, but if God is etching it, this is what the tombstone of millions and millions of people read. They had no idea that Jesus was talking to them about God. The Bible teaches that Jesus alone reveals God. You don't know God if you don't know Jesus. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, Matthew eleven twenty seven. That's why he talked to them about the Father. Jesus ever and only, Jesus always and perfectly uttered the words that his Father gave him to say. What a consecrated man. When we know things about people, what are we tempted to do? We're tempted to go tell everybody because it makes us feel a little better or a little taller to step on somebody else. Jesus didn't need that. What a consecrated man. What a beautiful aspect of our Redeemer that the one who knew everything about everyone had a bridle on his tongue. John's Gospel can't get away from this theme. Here he says, I'm only going to say what I hear from the Father. One chapter earlier in 717, he said, if you're willing to do God's will, then you'll know whether I'm speaking on my own authority or my teaching is from God. He was a man totally consecrated to God. It's why the hymn writer said, take my lips and let them be filled with messages, Lord, for thee. John 8, 28, here in our same passage, I do nothing on my own authority but speak as the Father taught me. He never said a word unless he heard from his Father what to say. What a consecrated man. What a prophet. John 12, 49, Jesus says, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me commandment what to say and what to speak. Do you see him utilizing this little muscle which James said would set the whole world on fire if it's not consecrated to God. But he's using this little muscle for the glory of God and for the good of his fellow man. John 14, do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. If we're going to become like Christ, and every Christian wants to, If we're going to become like Christ, we're going to have to lay our tongue on his altar and say, this belongs to you. I will say what you tell me to say. So perishing people cannot hear God's message. Jesus only speaks God's message. And that leads us to the third and final part, verses 28 and 29, before one word of application from verse 30. Our third point is not only do perishing people not hear, 
And not only does Jesus only speak God's message, but verse 28 and 29, Jesus fully accomplished God's purpose. I know it's warm. Oh, God, help. Oh, God, help. Verse 28 and 29 have haunted me for three decades. Gloriously so. They are so crucial to the message of the whole Bible. The Gospel of John, I believe we could say, swings in many respects on verses 28 and 29. It is the epitaph over the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28 and 29 are saying to us, the Lord Jesus fully accomplished God's purpose. Lost people can't hear it. Jesus won't stop talking about it. And here's what that means. Verse 28, Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus fully accomplished God's purpose. You can see another accent mark in verse 28 of Jesus' consecrated tongue. I only speak the things as the Father taught me. But when Jesus said in verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, there is no doubt that he was speaking of his cross death. When you lift me up on a cross, when you tack me like a piece of meat to a Roman stake and try to do away with me, then you're going to know that I am he. What Jesus is saying is that God shouted a declaration to the universe through the trumpet of the cross that when Jesus took our sin on himself, or as Paul would put it, became sin for us, or as Galatians would put it, became a curse for us, or as Romans 8.3 would put it, was damned for us. When Jesus was lifted up on the cross, Jesus is making unmistakably clear in verse 28 that even rebels against God would not be able to miss the message. You couldn't hear it in verses 21 to 24, but there's coming a day when you will not be able to not hear it. This true light which came into the world, John tells us in the opening paragraph, enlightens every man. Nobody gets to hide from the light of the cross. Nobody. Although the light shines in the darkness, at this present time, the darkness does not comprehend, does not understand, does not overpower, does not change, does not adjust. Darkness cannot drive out light. Light drives out darkness. And it is not that the light of Christ is not shining, but it is that lost men and women have no capacity to hear or to see what they ought to be able to see in Christ. Verse 28, Jesus is laying emphasis on the fact that he is going to be crucified as the greatest message that every person must hear. 
He does say again in the verse, as I mentioned, I speak these things as the Father taught me. But there's something about when he's lifted up, when he has, verse 29, fully, completely, exhaustively obeyed the Father's will, when he has done everything that the Father has given him to do, John 17, verse 4, you're going to know. You're going to know, and the person sitting in front of you and behind you and beside you and all the people you ever pass on the streets of your lifetime, everybody's going to know that he is. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know. Notice verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and in the New American Standard, it italicizes the word he, the pronoun, because in the original, it's just you will know that I am. The same thing actually happened in verse 24. I didn't emphasize it then because I wanted to draw it out now. Therefore, verse 24, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Exact same construction in verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Verse 24, if you don't believe it, you're going to die in your sins. Verse 28, you're going to know it. It's not a question of whether or not you'll know. The question is, will you believe? Last week, we saw that Jesus declared himself to be the I am. Hearkening back to the Old Testament, Jesus identified himself in last week's passage as the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Hearkening back to Exodus 3 and so many times where the God of the universe reveals himself as the self-existent, eternal I am, the ever-present unlimited, immutable God. That's what Jesus is saying here. When you lift up the Son of Man, you're going to know that I am. You'll know that I'm God. And in this passage, I'm persuaded that Jesus is not only thinking of Exodus 3, but because of all the surrounding context, Feast of Tabernacles, God's faithfulness to Israel in the wilderness, the living water, the light of the world, the things that are coming in John chapter 9, I'm persuaded that the Lord Jesus is thinking about those messianic prophecies, especially in Isaiah, 700 years before he was born. Let me give you three of them. Isaiah 41.4, I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. I think Jesus has these texts in his mind and the people he was talking to were told in this passage it was the Jews. They know what he's talking about. Isaiah 43, 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe and understand I am. Before there was Before me, there was no God formed. There will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. That's what Jesus is saying. When you lift up the Son of Man, you're going to know I am. Isaiah 43, 13, even from eternity, I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. Dear ones, dear ones, most of you have heard of Jesus your whole life. Some have relegated him to our cosmic bellboy upon whom we snap and call when we need a little magic trick. What Jesus is saying here is you must repent 
of any domesticated view of Jesus. He doesn't fit in your box. He's the eternal I am, and he's the one who came to deal with your sin problem at the cross. I could dip into Isaiah 43, 25, Isaiah 48, 12, Deuteronomy 32, 39. Jesus is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. Chapter 8, verse 12, last week I mentioned, he said, I am the light of the world. In next week's passage, John's going to hit this symbol again in his crescendo statement in John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, that's 2,000 years before Jesus lived, before Abraham was born, I am, John 8, 58. Make no mistake, verse 28 demands a verdict from every person. It's the crescendo of all the crescendos. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. To truly know God, to truly know God, you must know Him through the cross of Christ. One more time, put another way. If you don't meet God at the cross of Christ, you don't know Him. You have to come to him at the cross. You have to see the horror of your sin, the sinfulness of your sin. The cross wasn't the plan of Satan. It wasn't the plan of the Sanhedrin. It wasn't the plan of the politicians who were sitting as judge and jury in the county seat of Jerusalem. The cross was the eternal plan of God to display the unimaginable wonders of his full orb glory and to purchase everlasting redemption for the bride of Christ. When you lift up the Son of Man, you'll know. You'll know that I am He didn't mean that everybody was going to be saved. You'll all know. He meant Philippians 2. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, that's the son's reward from the father for his obedience to the staros, to the death on the cross. So friends, in this life, this is freedom. This is joy. When you lift up the Son of Man, when the Lord Jesus deals with our sin problem at Calvary, do you want to know what he will give you? Do you want to know what the reward is? Verse 29, the reward for meeting God in Christ at the cross is unbroken fellowship with God. You get God if you come to him in Christ. Verse 29, he who sent me is with me, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's why Jesus said the Father had not left him alone. The word for, he is with me, he's never left me alone, because for I always do the things that please him. If you get saved, here's the sum total reward. You get God. The reason we must lay emphasis and accent on that week after week after week is because too many in our day presume that they're rightly related to God, presume that they believe in Jesus, but they use him as a means to an end. If you follow Jesus, you get X, Y, or Z. Don't get me wrong, there are a billion benefits in knowing God. 
But for those who know him in Christ, he himself is the goal. He's the end. He's the aim. He's the reward. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ, the I am, was lifted up on the cross. In fact, when he said in verse 29, he's always with me. He has never left me alone. There's actually only one time in Jesus' entire earthly life where that wasn't true. From the time of his birth to the time of his death, verse 29 was his constant atmosphere. The Father is always with me. He knew unbroken fellowship with his Father except for one moment. Verse 28, when he was lifted up on the cross, the Bible teaches us that that's the only time the Father left him alone. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why'd you leave me alone? And the Bible's answer is he was forsaken so that you would never have to be. Not only is Jesus, John 3, 16, God's only begotten son, he's also, look at the cross, his only forsaken son. He's the only one to whom the Father turned his back so that all who come to him through Jesus would never get the Father's back. God himself has said, Hebrews 13, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. See, the Lord Jesus fully accomplished God's purpose. He was lifted up to die. He did bear the penalty of our sin. And he suffered God's wrath so that we could be forgiven. This passage concludes with the application. It's in verse 30. What a short verse. Perishing people can't hear. Jesus won't stop talking about the need of the hour and the need of every man. He accomplished God's purpose for us at the cross by dying for the forgiveness of our sin. Verse 30, here's the application. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Not all, not most, many. Many came to believe in him. That means they received what he taught. That means they agreed with what he said about them in verses 21 to 24. It means that they didn't disregard that Jesus declared that they were born in sin, sinners by nature, and they lived in their sins, sinners by choice. Not all, not most, but many believed in him. But notice that those who believed, believed what he taught. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Friends, the the dungeon of your sin can be flamed with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ right now if you will believe what Jesus says about you, what Jesus says about God, and what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Jesus wants you to know God more than you want to know him. It would bring great glory to God. It would bring great pleasure to the heart of God if you would thrust yourself into the arms of the risen Jesus and abandon your whole life to him. If you would become one of the people described in verse 30 who came to believe in him. 
That little opening line, as he spoke these things, that's the only way you can believe. It's the reason we preach about Jesus and his cross every week because faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing according to the word of Christ. The preaching of Jesus. If you don't hear the truth of the gospel, you cannot believe. Romans says, how will they believe unless somebody tells them? Then he said to them, I will go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Do you see that every person's life either fits into verse 21 or verse 30? Everybody. Either you're a verse 30 person. I'm one of the many who came to believe in Jesus or you're a verse 21 person. You will die in your sin. That's why the title of the sermon is Eternity in the Balance. Which will it be? I believe the reason God had me pray my heart out for you this week and do my best to dig into this passage and try to present it faithfully. I believe the whole reason he has you here is precisely because he does not want you to perish, but to come to repentance. Dear ones, Jesus, who spoke this passage and died on that cross and rose again from the tomb and reigns everlastingly, is ready to save you. And all that he requires of you is that you become sensible of your need of him and you thrust yourself into his arms by faith. You turn from your sin and you embrace all that God is for you in the risen Jesus. All that God is for you. Now let me be clear, you need a calculator because Jesus said you're a fool if you start building the house and realize halfway through you don't have money to finish. That's foolish. That's absurd. Who who, who would do that? It's epically foolish if you say, oh, yeah, sure, preacher, I'll, I'll give me Jesus. No, no, no. I'm saying get your calculator. Salvation is absolutely free. The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He has done everything that is required for you to be made right with God. You don't take one step and he take 99 and there's 100 total steps for you and God to be made right. No, 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 you took 100 the wrong way. Jesus came and chased you down. You were dead in the bottom of the ocean. You were absolutely a, 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 a corpse spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Jesus did all the work necessary for you to be reconciled to God, for your sin problem to be dealt with. But the reason you need your calculator is because if you don't want to give him your whole life, and I mean your whole life, all the rest of your days, all your possessions, all your relationships, all your aspirations, all your dreams, everything about you, then you don't want this Jesus. But there's nothing more joy-filled and thrilling, nothing more peace-inducing and inspiring, nothing more soul-satisfying in all the universe than being rightly related to the God who made you. You don't give up anything to follow Jesus, but I do want to be clear. There is no sacrifice. That's what I mean. You don't give up anything to follow Jesus. Nothing. 
because what you gain compared to what you lose is not even worthy of comparison. That's what Paul said. And though you don't give up anything in terms of making a sacrifice, oh, I gave up so much for Jesus. No, you didn't. Nothing compared to what you gain. I want to be clear. We're not talking about an easy believism, pray your prayer, do your little religious penance every once in a while. Jesus gets 10%, a tithe of your life. That's not what we're talking about. When he invades your life, he takes over. And we don't live perfectly for him on this side of eternity, but we increasingly desire to pursue him and to know him. And if you give your heart to Christ, your testimony will be, not maybe, not super elite, not special tier of Christianity. Your testimony, if you give your life to Jesus, will be, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. You can't get over that. And you don't relegate him to one little part of your life. When you give your life to Jesus, your testimony will be, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. You give him everything. And that's why when Jesus said, I'm only telling you what God wants you to know so that you can have life. It reminds me of what Moses said to about two million Israelites right before they crossed into the promised land. He said in Deuteronomy, I set before you today life and death, blessing and curse. Choose. And one day soon, and this is why I say eternity's in the balance. Do you notice that Jesus said two times in the last two chapters? Two times. He's going to say it again in chapter 12. He's going to say it again in chapter 14. He's going to say it again in chapter 16. Some people are going to seek me. They're not going to be able to find me. I take that to mean that when people perish in their sins, they're going to remember that they had ample opportunity to turn to Christ and they wouldn't believe. You will seek me, but you won't find me because you will die in your sins. It doesn't have to be that way. Would you join me in prayer? Oh God, I ask that you would cause people to hear the testimony concerning Christ, Romans 10, 17, and believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word concerning Christ. Oh God, open eyes and ears and cause those who do know him to freshly abandon ourselves to Jesus. Give us Christ or else we die. This we pray in Jesus' name.